0: You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. It's good to see you. If, uh, if you didn't catch my, my name earlier, my name's Sam. I serve as one of the pastors here. And I'm actually really glad that Mark did that moment on the front half of the service, so it's not contingent on how well I preach today. <laughs> but uh, such a special time. Thanks for being here today and for sharing those words with us. Uh, Maybe I'll say this to you, our church, Um, Jorley and I just really love you all, it's such an honor and a privilege to get to serve as a pastor here with all of you, and uh, maybe one of the greatest privileges of my life to get to do this and serve you all and uh, pastor in this way. Well, we are uh, kicking off a brand new series today called, I Am Jesus in His Own Words, and uh, we're going to spend the rest of the summer months, we're going to spend uh, July and August walking through this series, and we're going to look at these different statements that Jesus says throughout the book of John, these I am statements. And uh, so, so these statements are kind of like they're word pictures or metaphors uh, that Jesus uses to describe an aspect of who he is, of his character. And so here's a few of the different themes that we're going to look at together throughout the summer months. We're going to look at uh, the statement where Jesus says in, in John, "I'm the bread of life." We're going to look at, "I am the light of the world." I'm the good shepherd, the resurrection in the life, the true vine, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this series. But it's possible that you would be sitting here today and you would say, "Well, why does why do these statements matter? Why should I spend my hopefully sunny Sunday mornings?" Here's to hoping. Why should I spend them here learning about these statements from Jesus? Like, the bread of life, I'm keto or gluten-free. Or, or, or I'm the good shepherd. Well, I live in Coquitlam in the suburbs. Why do I need to learn about caring for sheep? Uh, why should I spend these Sunday mornings here? Well, A.W. Tozer, who's a 20th century theologian, who's a thought leader, actually an ordained alliance pastor he was, uh, he says this. He says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Okay, why, Tozer? Why is our vision or our understanding of God the most important thing about us? Well, anthropologists and sociologists, including, can you hear me? There we go. Anthropologists and sociologists, including a guy named James K.A. Smith, he'll tell you that you are what you love. Or in other words, you become like whatever it is that you worship. You become like whoever it is that has your affections or your attention. Essentially, you become like your God. And so when we worship Jesus in the fullness of who he is, not who we want him to be, but who he truly is, we begin to look more and more in the days and the months and the years of following him, we begin to look more and more like him. Well, at the same time, if we give our allegiance to something or someone else, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we begin to look like that person or that thing that we're worshiping. And and while some Christians intentionally deviate from worshiping the triune God, most just over time begin to worship a God who looks a lot less like the God we read about in the pages of Scripture and a lot more like, well, ourselves. As the saying goes, God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. (laughs) So here's how you know if you've created a God in your own image. He, He agrees with you on everything. He hates all the things that you hate. He votes for the person that you voted for. If you're passionate about blank, then God's passionate about blank. If you're open and elastic about your sexuality, then so is God, and above all, he's tame. You never get get mad at him or or you never are blown away by him or scared of him because he's controllable. The problem with that version of God is that, well, essentially, he's a fragment of your imagination, an extension of oneself. And and the kind of scary thing is that you might not even realize that it's happening, but if you're not consistently growing in your faith, and seeking to understand God for who he truly is, cross-checking your understanding of God with what scripture says about our God, then you'll likely begin to over time worship a God who looks a lot more like you. And, and maybe I'll say this, that, that there's lots of mystery about God. You know, even people who diligently study the words of God and, and, and seek to encounter this God and to know him and to submit to who he is, even then we're left with questions We can't fully grasp the reality of the Trinity or understand why he moves the way he does sometimes. And he's so great and wondrous and and, and our finite brains can't even, aren't capable of fully grasping the reality of God. That being said, there are some absolutes about God. There are things that are clear and without question about the very nature and character of God. Truths about him that we can absolutely build our lives on and that will, if we let them, will completely change and shape the people that we become. And so that's why we're camping here this summer, to get a clearer and deeper understanding of this God that we serve, to really know Jesus. And what better way to do that than to look at his words, the very words of Jesus himself, the image of the invisible God describing who he is. So first up, and maybe the most confrontational of Jesus' statements, at least to the original hearers, is John chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, would you turn there with me right now? John chapter 8. And we're going to start reading in verse 48. John eight, forty-eight. And while you're turning there, just a little bit of context about the text that we're going to read together today. Jesus is, let's say, smack in the middle of his ministry on earth, of his public ministry. And, and I don't think it's an overstatement to say that, that he's really starting to take off the religious teachers of the day. Because he's challenging their motives and he's pushing back against their hypocrisy and the way that they've been practicing their faith. And so chapter 8 opens with the Pharisees, these religious teachers. They're trying to trip him up. They're, they're asking questions and trying to catch Jesus saying something heretical so they can discredit his ministry and, uh, and, and hopefully shut down this growing following that seems to be kind of following Jesus wherever he goes. And So as John 8 unfolds, I've recognized that things that Jesus are saying seem to become more and more edgy or provocative and he's making audacious claims about who he is and his ability to set people free about his relationship with the father with Yahweh and so the conversation is tense to say the least because the hearts of the hearers are cold they're not buying what he's selling and so they're throwing insults at him they're trying to corner him and discredit him and that leads to verse 48 so would you stand with me as we read that together John chapter 8, starting in verse 48. Here's what it says. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan or demon-possessed? I'm not demon-possessed, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking to glorify myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him and I obey his words. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered. And this is the first I am statement that we're going to look at together. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away. From the temple. It's the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. And so, maybe the, 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 the first and most important question that we could ask as we start to look at this text is why are the Pharisees so mad? Like I mentioned earlier that the Jewish teachers already didn't like this Jesus because of his countercultural teachings and his apparent power over sickness and disease and and the elements. But what caused them to, at the end of chapter 8, to pick up stones with intention to take Jesus' life? Well, it all climaxes in Jesus' punchline in uh, verse 58 of this passage where he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. And I want to use the majority of our time together today to look at that statement. I want to break it up into two parts. I want to look at what Jesus first says about Abraham, and then I want to take the second portion to look at this these two short words, I am. So first, what Jesus says about Abraham. I've always been fascinated by time travel. Anybody else? And at first glance, I think what it looks like here is that Jesus is saying that he traveled back in time to ask Abraham some questions, and maybe he even went back, you know, to before Abraham's birth. And so that's at first glance what this might look like. Um, I recently, uh, yeah, like, like back to the future, I recently also, you can go to the next image, um, I, I read this article by Stephen Hawking, who on July 28, 2009, this is a few years back, he hosted a party for time travelers. Essentially, he was trying to meet people who came back in time from the future. And so he sent out invitations to this party, but he actually sent them out the day after the party because he said, well, if time traveling really is a thing, they'll get the invitation, they'll travel back in time to my party, and then we'll know that time traveling is real. And so as you might guess, uh, he ended up spending the evening alone. <laughs> and as a result, he, this esteemed physicist concluded that time traveling is not possible. And whether or not Hawking is right about this, time traveling is not what Jesus is referring to. But can you imagine the kind of confusion that the people would have been facing, the original hearers, when Jesus exclaimed that before Abraham was, I am. Like, to put it into perspective, Abraham was born 2,000 years before Jesus. So in context, Abraham was as far before Jesus as Jesus was before us. So this wasn't his grandfather or even his great-great-grandfather. Abraham walked 2,000 years before Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying to the religious teachers here sounds absolutely ridiculous. And in case you don't know who this Abraham figure is, Abraham was known as the father and the founder of the Jewish faith. When people talked about God, about, about the Jewish God, they called him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The descendants of Abraham would then become the 12 tribes of Israel. God's original covenant with his people, the Abrahamic covenant, was made with Abraham. And so before Jesus even gets to that punchline in verse 58, the religious teachers are already starting to get kind of antsy. Because it sounds like Jesus is claiming to have known Abraham. And not only to have known him, it sounds like he's claiming to be more powerful than Abraham himself. Look at verse 51. Where Jesus says that anyone who keeps his word will never die. Now, we know on this side of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. On this side of history that Jesus is talking about a spiritual death. He's saying that to those who follow him, that they'll never have separation from God. That they'll pass from this life into the next and never cease to be in God's presence. But the Pharisees hear those words with no context of what's to come on the other side of the resurrection. And they say, now we know you're demon-possessed. Why? Well, well, Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our our father, Abraham? See, to to suggest that a person was greater than Abraham was unthinkable. Abraham had the closest, most intimate relationship with God that maybe any human ever had. He lived purely and uprightly before God. It, It was because of Abraham that they even had their faith to begin with. And now Jesus, this, this, this rabbi who was previously just a simple carpenter, he's claiming to have power over death. Who do you think you are? Jesus of Nazareth, they say. And Jesus replies, before Abraham was, I am. This, uh, this is the closest that Jesus ever gets himself to, to echoing the words of John 1.1 1, 1 that says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. The claim that Jesus is making here is that he, a 33-year-old carpenter turned rabbi from nowhere in Nazareth, that he preexisted Abraham. Okay, let's put a pin in that conversation for a second. And uh, I want to take a moment and zero in on this, this statement, I am. If you're anything like my wife, Jorley, then it's possible that you get really annoyed by bad grammar. Actually, speaking of which, we, uh, we were just looking at schools for my daughter to go to, which is crazy. How are we already looking at schools for Kinsley? But that's where we are. And uh, we were looking at uh, the website of a few different Christian schools. And there was one that we really liked, except that they spelled secondary wrong. And Julie's like, how can we send our child to a school that can't even spell secondary right on their website? But, but at first glance... Verse 58, the statement from Jesus, it looks like some pretty bad grammar is going on. Like, shouldn't it read, before Abraham was, am, I was? Is Jesus just really bad at forming sentences, or did it maybe get lost in translation as these words were being translated from Greek into English? Why I am and not I was? Well, any Bible scholar will tell you that these words were actually very intentionally chosen. See, if what Jesus said about pre-existing Abraham, if that wasn't enough to get the Pharisees to pick up rocks to kill Jesus, these next two words would certainly push them over the edge. To understand the significance of the words, I am, I want to turn back to, to the Old Testament for a moment. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there real quick. Exodus chapter 3, it'll also be on the screen. But stay with me. To some of you, this might feel like some really geeky footnotes, but I promise that this is not only going to help us to understand the text that we're looking at today, but it's also really going to help to set a foundation for this whole series that we'll be walking through for this summer. These words, I am. They originated from this conversation that God had between, or that happened between God and Moses in Exodus chapter three. God's people are uh, the the Israelites are in slavery in this nation called Egypt, and this is the moment where God is calling Moses to go and to rescue his people from slavery. Moses is just tending to his father in law's sheep, minding his own business. He encounters this burning bush, has this radical experience with God, and God tells him to go and to rescue his people from from slavery. And rightfully so, Moses has some questions. And he says, suppose I go to Israel and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you. And they say, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, The God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And so these words, I am, is the name for God. When Moses says, Whom shall I tell them has sent me? God replies, Tell them that I am has sent you. And we have to remember that that in Hebrew, names aren't just words that identify a person. These aren't just names that are selected from a name generator app, and you kind of just like the sound of it, and so you call them that. Uh, No, names were a description of a person's character and nature. A person's name was kind of a way to get a window into who they were, into their character, to what people said about them, to who they were. Uh, And there's a, a bunch of different times throughout Scripture where we see the significance of names, where God kind of gives someone a name or gives someone a new name. Think Abraham to Abraham or Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul. And so, so names have a lot of meaning and, and are really important, especially in Jewish culture. And so here is a moment where God gives a glimpse into his nature through his name. And, and John Hawes actually helped me to kind of see some of this. The English word I am here is translated from the Hebrew word Hayah. And there's, there's different forms of this word. There's different tenses, but essentially it's I am, I was, and I will be. And so the word Hayah is what God's name is rooted in. And it's that he's the God that is, he's the God that was, and the God that will be. And there's two huge truths that I want us to get about the name of God. The first is that he's his self-existence. This is huge. God is entirely self-existent. He depends on nothing. Nothing. He has no cause, no no external force acting on him. At the deepest level of reality, at the center of every atom in the universe, lies the great I am. Who are you, God? Moses asks. The uncreated being who simply is. I am the one who is. The second truth that I want us to see is that he's unchanging. At the baseline of the universe is this relational being that is completely consistent and steady. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, There's this study that that shows that um, judges, kind of in the court of law, that judges, they'll change their sentencing based on how long it's been since they ate their last meal. (laughs) Which isn't very good. But not so with God. Nothing will change him. I am who I am. And I think that's especially relevant as we live in a world where it feels like nothing is steady, that everything is changing faster than most of us can even keep up with it or handle, where you don't know what to trust or who to trust, we can rest in that fact that God is constant and unchanging, that he can absolutely be relied on, that what he says is true and will never change. Okay, so let's, let's go back to that initial question I asked earlier on. Why are the Pharisees so mad at Jesus? Why, why did they want to kill him as we close the passage? Because Jesus wasn't only claiming to be alive before Abraham, which is crazy talk in itself. But by using the words, I am, he was identifying with Yahweh. He was identifying with God. He was saying, you know why... I know these things about Abraham. You know why I have power over sickness and disease, over demons and over death itself? You know why I teach with such authority, with even more authority than Abraham himself? Because I am the I am. The Father and I are one. The God you call Yahweh, the one who made a covenant with Abraham, the one who spoke to Moses through a burning bush, the one who delivered the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. The one who's self-existent and unchanging. I am he. Here's the crazy part. The God that they had been spending their lives worshiping day after day in the synagogues. The one they'd been learning about all their lives as they memorized the Torah and learned to obey the laws and to prepare the sacrifices. That God, Yahweh, I am, was right there in front of them. But they missed it. God had come to be with them. To get it even closer to them than Abraham or Moses had ever experienced, face to face. But they didn't have eyes to see him or a heart to receive. And so, how did they respond? They picked up rocks to kill him. And I think we, even today, need to make a decision as to how we'll respond to this claim from Jesus this claim that he is God, that he is before all things, after all things. In uh, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has this moment alone with his close friends. He has this time alone with the 12 disciples, and uh, he says to them, who are people saying that I am? And in verse 14 of that chapter, they reply, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or the prophets. And then he says, "But, but what about you? Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? I wonder how we would respond to that question today if Jesus asked us, who are people saying that I am? Who are are people in the Vancouver Lower Mainland? Who do your friends and relatives and co-workers and neighbors, who do they say that I am? Today, some people might say that that he has ideologies that are even dangerous, or others might say that he's a good teacher, that he's a good moral leader, he's a prophet, a revolutionist, a good person to follow what they did. But then I think Jesus today would even look at us, maybe like he did to Peter. He'd look us in the eyes and he'd say, but who do you say that I am? The way that you answered that question will make all the difference in your life. Peter answered, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. I want to share this quote from C.S. Lewis. I shared this not too long ago, actually on Easter Sunday, but I think it's so incredibly relevant to this conversation we're starting in this brand new series. Lewis writes this, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of one who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. The way that we answer that question about Jesus, who do you say that I am, will profoundly change and shape the kind of people that we become. Will change the whole trajectory of our lives. And that's why we're going to take this whole summer to explore these different statements and seek to truly understand this Jesus that we serve. Okay? Let's pray, and then we'll respond in worship. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. That you are the great I am. You are a God who never changes. Who we can trust in the midst of uncertainty. A God who was, and is, and is to come. And so as we begin this series, and as over these next number of weeks we explore these different I Am statements, I pray that we would get a clearer and truer understanding of who you are, and that that would form the people that we become, that we would be people who look more and more like you in the days and the weeks and the years of following you. Continue the good work you've started in us. Reveal yourself to us. Help us to experience your presence. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing together? Oh, so kind, um, Mark. Thanks for thanks for being here today and for leading that special moment for John and Ryan and I. And uh, maybe I'll just say to you, our church, um, it is such an honor and a privilege to serve as a pastor here. Uh, maybe one of the greatest joys of my life. And my wife, Joyly and I, we love you guys so much. It's been so cool to get to serve in this way. Well, we are uh, we're starting a brand new series this morning called, uh, I was going to say God of All Things. No, that's not what we're doing. We're starting a brand new series today called I Am, Jesus in His Own Words. And so over the next number of weeks throughout July and August, we're going to look at these various statements from Jesus it all comes from the book of John, and we're looking at these different statements that Jesus makes about his identity, about who he is, about his character, and we're going to seek to understand more about, more the character, more the person of this Jesus that we worship. So here's a, a few of the themes that we're going to go through together this summer. We're going to look at a section of John where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the true vine, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this series. Uh, But it's possible that even as you hear me say that today, it's possible that you would say, well, why does this series matter? Why do these statements from Jesus matter? Like the bread of life, I'm keto or gluten-free. Why do I need to hear about that? Or uh, the good shepherd, I live in the suburbs of Coquitlam. I have no need to learn how to care for sheep. Um, why does this series even matter? Well, there's a guy named A.W. Tozer who was a 20th century theologian, a thought leader. He's actually also an ordained alliance pastor. But he said, uh, he said this. He said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Okay, why Tozer? Why is our vision or our understanding of God the most important thing about us? Well, well anthropologists and sociologists, including a guy named James K.A. Smith, He would tell you that you are what you love. In other words, you become like whatever it is that you worship. You become like whatever or whoever it is that has your attention. You become like your God. When we worship Jesus in the fullness of who he is, not who we want him to be, but who he actually is, we begin to look over time, in the days, in the months, in the years of following him, we begin to look more and more like Jesus. While at the same time, if we give our allegiance to to someone or to something else, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we begin to look like that person or thing that we're worshiping. And while some Christians intentionally make a decision to deviate from worshiping our triune God, most, just over time, begin to unintentionally, you know, over time, just begin to worship a God who looks less and less like the the God we see on the pages of Scripture— And more and more like, well, ourselves. As the saying goes, God created man in his own image. And man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. (laughs) So here's how you know if you've created a God in your own image. First, he agrees with you on everything. He hates all the people that you hate. He votes for the person that you voted for. If you're passionate about blank, then he's passionate about blank. If you're open and elastic about your sexuality, so is he. And above all, he's tame. He's never mad, or you're never mad at him, you never blow up at him, you're never scared of him, or you stand in awe of him, because he's controllable. The problem with that vision of God is that, well, essentially, he's a figment of your imagination, an extension of oneself. And, and that can be kind of scary because you might not even realize that it's happening, but if you're not consistently learning and growing in your faith and seeking to understand this God for who he is, cross-checking your understanding of God with, with the God we read about in Scripture, you're likely going to begin to worship a God that looks a lot more like you. And maybe I should say there's so much mystery about God. You know, even the people who are consistently kind of seeking to study and learn and encounter this God of of Scripture, uh, to submit to his will and to his ways, even then we're left with questions. We can't fully grasp the reality of the Trinity or understand why he moves the way he does, why he does the things he does. He's so big and wondrous and our finite brains are incapable of fully grasping this reality of God. That being said, there are some absolutes. There are things that are clear and without question about the very nature and character of God. Truths about Him that we can absolutely build our lives on. Things that that should and will, if we let them, really shape the kind of people that we become. And so that's why we're camping out here this summer to get a clearer and deeper understanding of this God that we serve, to really know Jesus. And what better way to get there than looking at his very statements, the statements that Jesus himself makes about who he is and what he's life as he describes himself. So first up, and maybe most confrontational of all Jesus' statements throughout the book of John, at least to the original hearers, is John chapter 8. So if you have a Bible or you want to grab the one in the pew in front of you, you can turn there right now, John chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 48, And while you turn there this morning, I'll just give you a little bit of context about the text that we're about to read together. Jesus is, um, we'll say, right smack in the middle of his public ministry. He's been healing the sick, and he's been casting out demons, and he's been teaching about the kingdom of God. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that he's really starting to tick off the religious teachers of the day. Because he's challenging their motives, he's pushing it back against their hypocrisy and uh, the way that they've practiced their faith. And so chapter 8 opens with, with these Pharisees, these religious teachers, they're, they're kind of trying to trip him up, they're trying to trip up Jesus and ask him questions, trying to make him say something heretical that will disqualify him as a leader and, and will kind of shut down this growing following that seems to be following and forming around Jesus. And as John 8 unfolds, the thing that Jesus begins to say, it, it feels like it starts to get more and more edgy as the passage goes on. As he talks about his, his ability to, to free people, about his relationship with the Father, with Yahweh. And so the conversation as we pick up in verse 48 is already very tense. The people aren't buying what he's selling. And so they're throwing insults at him. They're trying to corner him and discredit him. And that leads to verse 48. So would you stand with me as we read this passage of scripture together? John chapter 8 starting in verse 8. And here's what it says. It says, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not demon-possessed. I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking to glorify myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, yet you say whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I do not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. You're not 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered. And this is the first of the I Am statements that we're going to look at this summer. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can take a seat. So maybe the first and and most important question we could ask as we start to read and understand this passage together is why are the Pharisees so mad? Like, I mentioned earlier as as I was kind of setting up the passage that the Jewish teachers already didn't like this Jesus because of some of the countercultural teachings he was sharing and his apparent power over sickness and demons and the elements. But what caused them to, at the end of chapter 8, to pick up stones with intention to take Jesus' life? Well, it all climaxes at, at this punchline statement from Jesus in verse 58 where he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And I want to use the majority of our time together today to unpack that statement in two parts. I want to look at first what Jesus says about Abraham, and then I want to unpack those two simple words at the end, I am. And so first, what Jesus says about Abraham. I've always been fascinated by time travel. Anybody else? <laughs> And at first glance, as we look at this text, it, it looks like Jesus might be saying that he traveled back in time to the time of Abraham or even before Abraham was born. And uh, yeah, just like this, this, this uh, visual on the screen, and what comes into my mind is Back to the Future. Any fans of that movie? Yeah, it's a good one. And uh, I mean, in, in addition to that movie, I also read an article about time travel just recently. It was, it was talking about Stephen Hawking who on June 28, 2009, hosted a party for time travelers. Essentially, he was trying to to, to meet some people who had traveled back in time. And so he sent out invitations, but he did it the day after the party. Because he said, if time traveling really is real, if it does happen, then the people will get the invitation in the future and will travel back in time to attend my party. And uh, needless to say, he spent the evening alone. (laughs) And this esteemed physicist, as a result of that, he concluded that time traveling was not possible. Now, whether or not Hawking's conclusions are true or not, time travel is not what Jesus was talking about here. But can you imagine the kind of confusion that would have been on the faces of the original hearers when Jesus exclaimed that before Abraham was, I am. Like To put it into perspective, Abraham walked on the earth 2,000 years before Jesus came on the scene. And then Jesus is 2,000 years before us. So so Jesus is is as far away from Abraham as Jesus was born from us. That's a long time. This wasn't his grandfather or even his great-great-grandfather. Abraham walked on the earth 2,000 years ago. So what Jesus is saying sounds absolutely ridiculous. And, And in case you don't know who this Abraham figure is, Abraham was known as the father and the founder of the Jewish faith. When people talked about God, about the Jewish God, Yahweh, they would refer to him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The descendants of Abraham later became the 12 tribes of, of Israel. God's original covenant with his people was the Abrahamic covenant. And so, so before Jesus even gets to that punchline statement in verse 58, the religious teachers are, are already starting to get antsy. Because it sounds like Jesus is claiming to know Abraham And not only to know him, but it sounds like his claims are are projecting him as more powerful than even Abraham himself. Look at at verse 51, where Jesus says that anyone who keeps his word will never die. Now, we know on this side of, of Jesus' death and resurrection that he's referring to a spiritual death. He's saying that to those who follow him, obey him, give their allegiance to him, that they will never experience separation from God. That they'll pass from this life into the next life, and live in the presence of God himself for eternity. But the Pharisees, they hear that with no context of what's to come. And and they say this, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Why? Well, Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And you say, whoever obeys your word will never taste death. See, to suggest that someone was, was, was greater than Abraham was unthinkable. Abraham had the closest, most intimate relationship with God than maybe any other person had ever had. lived purely and uprightly before God. It was because of Abraham that they even had their faith, the covenants with God. And, And then this rogue first century teacher was claiming to have the ability to keep people from tasting death, a reality that even Abraham himself had tasted and experienced. He lived, he died. Who do you think you are, Jesus of Nazareth? And then Jesus replies, before Abraham was, I am. This is the closest Jesus ever gets to echoing the words of John 1.1, 1, 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The claim that Jesus is making here is that he, a 33-year-old carpenter turned rabbi from nowhere Nazareth, that he preexisted Abraham. Okay, let's put a pin in that conversation for a second. I want to take a look at those, those last two words, I am. If you're anything like my wife, Jorley, uh, then you might get annoyed by bad grammar, okay? Actually, speaking of which, um, we're starting to look for schools for our little girl, Kinsley, to go to, which is crazy. How are we here already looking for schools? But we were looking at different Christian schools in the area, and we were looking at one specifically. We were really excited about it, and then she said, oh, no, they spelt secondary wrong on their website. How can we possibly send our daughter to a school that spells secondary wrong, But uh, but at first glance, verse 58, the statement from Jesus, it looks like it's just a sentence with some pretty bad grammar. Like, shouldn't it read, before Abraham was born, I was? Is Jesus really bad at forming sentences, or did it somehow get lost in translation coming from the Greek to, to English? Why I am and not I was? Well, any Bible scholar or theologian will tell you that these words were actually very intentionally chosen. And if Jesus' statement about Abraham and pre-existing Abraham didn't already make the, the, the first century Jewish teachers want to kill Jesus, these next two words would absolutely do the job. And to understand the significance of I am, I want to jump back to the Old Testament for a sec. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter 3. It's also going to be on the screen if you want to view it there. And, and stay with me. To some of you, for, for a moment, it might feel like some geeky sort of footnotes, but I promise this understanding, this context of I am, is not only going to add depth and meaning to this passage we're looking at today, but it's actually going to set up our whole series that we'll be looking at together this summer. Those words, I am, they originated in this conversation between God and Moses in Exodus chapter 3. God's people, the Israelites, they're, they're in slavery in, in the nation of Egypt, and this is the moment where God calls Moses to rescue them. Moses is just minding his own business, tending his father-in-law's sheep. And then he sees this burning bush in the distance and he comes up to the burning bush. He has this conversation with God where God calls him to go and rescue the Jewish people, to kind of pull them out of slavery. And rightfully so, Moses has some questions for God. How's this gonna happen? What's this gonna look like? And in verse 13, he asks this question. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what's his name? And what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is who you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is important because I am is the name for God. When Moses says, whom shall we say has sent, sent us? God replies, tell them that I am has sent you. And we have to remember that, that the, in, in Hebrew, names aren't just words that are chosen to identify someone. So it's not just a name that you give someone because you know you, you have a, like a name generator app and you like the way that it sounds. No, names in the Jewish tradition actually tell you, they kind of give you a window into the personality and the character of a person. And all throughout scripture, we see names are critically important. There's even times where God changes someone's name from Abraham to Abraham, from Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul. And so names have significant meaning. And so when God gives this, this name, when he shares his name with Moses, he's giving a glimpse into who he is, into his character. The English word I am, or those words, are translated from the Hebrew word Hayah. And there's different forms of the word, different tenses, but, but essentially it means I am, I was and I will be. And so the word Hayah is what God's name is rooted in, the God that was, the God that is, and the God that will be. And and there's two big truths in that name that that I want us to catch together this morning, and that that name I am. First is that he's self-existent, and this is huge. God is entirely self-existent. He depends on nothing for his existence. He has no cause, no external forces acting on him. Uh, At the deepest level of reality, at the center of every atom is in the universe, lies the great I am. Who are you, God? Asks Moses. He says, the uncreated being. I simply am. I am who I am. So he's self-existent. The second thing I want to say is, is that he's unchanging. It reveals his unchanging nature. At the baseline of the universe is a relational being that is completely consistent Completely steady. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's, uh, there's studies that show that, that even judges in the court of law, that even judges will change their sentence based on how long it's been since they ate their last meal. <laughs> Humanity can be inconsistent, but not God. Nothing will change about him. I am who I am. And I think that's incredibly relevant in the world we're living in right now, where it feels like nothing is steady. That everything is changing at such a rapid pace that most of us can't keep up or, or handle the level of change where you don't know who to trust or what to trust, but you can absolutely rest in the fact that God is constant and unchanging, that he can absolutely be relied on, that what he says is true and it never changes. Okay, let's go back to that initial question that I asked earlier about our text in John 8. Why were the Pharisees so mad at Jesus? Why did they want to kill him? Well, I think it was because not only was Jesus claiming to be alive before Abraham, which is crazy talk in itself, but by using the word, I am, he was identifying with Yahweh. He was saying, you you know why I know all these things about Abraham? You know why I have power over sickness and disease, over demons, and over death itself? You know why I teach with such authority, even more authority than Abraham himself? Because I am that I am. The Father and I are one. The God you call Yahweh, the one who made covenants with Abraham, the one who spoke to Moses back at the burning bush, the one who delivered the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land, the one who who is self-existent and unchanging. I am he, and here's the crazy part. The God that they had spent their entire lives worshiping, day after day in the synagogues, the one that they'd been learning about since they were children as they memorized the Torah day after day, learned to obey the laws and prepare the sacrifices, God, Yahweh, I am, was right there in front of them. But they missed it. God had come to be with them, to get even closer to them than Abraham or Moses had ever been face to face with God himself, but they didn't have eyes to see him or a heart to receive. So how did they respond? They picked up stones to kill him. And I think that we, even today, we need to make a decision about how we'll respond to this claim from Jesus, this claim to be God. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has a moment alone with some of his closest friends, call them his 12 disciples. And he asks them, he says, who are people saying that I am? In verse 14, they reply, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? I wonder how we would answer that question today. If Jesus looked at us, and he said, who are people saying that I am? Who do people in the Vancouver Lower Mainland, your friends, your relatives, your co-workers and neighbors, who do they say that I am? Today, some people might say he's a guy who has some dangerous ideologies. Others would say he's a really good teacher. Others would say he's a moral leader, a prophet, a revolutionist. But then I think Jesus today would look us straight in the eye, one-on-one, as he did with Peter. And he would say, who do you say that I am? Maybe look you in the eye and say, Who do you say that I am? The way you answer that question will make a dramatic impact on your life. Peter answered and said, You're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Who do you say that I am? I want to share a quote from C.S. Lewis. I shared this quote not too long ago, back on Easter Sunday, but I think it's so relevant to this, this, this new series that we're launching into today. And this is what Lewis writes. He says, A man who's merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And so, maybe in conclusion today, I just want to say again that the way that you answer that question about Jesus, who do you say that I am, will profoundly shape the kind of person that you become, will change the entire trajectory of your life. And so, maybe I'll just say, even as we close, if you're here today and you don't know this Jesus, and you're exploring and you want to know, you're intrigued. We would love to talk to you and, and help you to understand this Jesus that we'll be exploring. This, this is the reason, this very reason, why we're, we're spending the, the next number of weeks exploring more and more of the heart of Jesus, because who he is and who we say that he is will dramatically change our lives. Yeah? Okay. Well, let's pray, and then we'll respond in, in singing some songs together. Oh well, Lord, thank you for this, this beautiful text of Scripture, but this confrontational text where we're brought to this crossroads and we need, to, we need to make a decision and say, who will we say that you are? Because saying that you're God and saying that you're King re- requires a response, requires that we orient our lives around who you are and what you say, what you say is best for us. And so would you help us to honor you, Jesus, to live a life in light of who you are. Holy Spirit, would you continue the work that you've started in us until you bring it to completion and we look like Jesus Christ, our King. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.